This podcast was created on Messy. Create your own show today at messy.fm. Welcome to Pace and Freedom. I am your host, James Pace. And as I mentioned on the episode previous, this is another episode for today. What a treat. Two episodes on one Monday. And wait, there's more. For my patrons on my Patreon page, you can see both of these episodes in video, uncut, unedited. In this episode, I have a conversation with one amazing guy I look up to. He's an inspiration to myself and I imagine to many libertarians because this guy ran an amazing campaign, probably one of the, the most successful campaigns for the Libertarian Party back in 2018. He ran for governor of Illinois, which is a deep blue state. You can only imagine the hurdles that he had to overcome. And at the same time, dealing with family court, I can't even imagine the stress. So for me, this is a great, amazing privilege. So without further ado, enjoy this episode. All right. I do apologize. I have to do it in my vehicle. It's one of the challenges of living rural. Yeah. <laughs> How do you like it around there? Love it. I don't like living in the city, but that's where I'm at now. So thanks for being on. Like I've told you like a million times. It's a great honor. I'm excited. Tell us who you are, Cash. Well, I uh, my legal name is Grayson Cash Jackson. And as many people know, I that's not... Uh, the name I was given at birth, I was actually born Benjamin Winderweedle, uh, which is a mouthful. It's a challenge. And I kept that name throughout my entire naval career. Um, but what many people don't know is that I was raised by my maternal grandparents and their last name was Jackson. And I didn't meet my father's side of the family until I was in kind of my early 20s there. Um, actually, whenever I was at my first command, the USS Nebraska out of Kings Bay, Georgia. And uh, anyways... My paternal grandparents were real big Johnny Cash fans, and they played folk music all over the country. And uh, so there was just kind of a a combination of some things. I mean, I'd already been in the military, and, you know, of course, changing your name is no, it's kind of a daunting task, you know what I mean? But kind of towards the latter part of my career in the Navy and the the experiences that I had outside of the military, going through family court and, uh, and other things... Um, it made me really consider, you know, the man that I was and the man that I wanted to be in the future. And I elected to change my name and, uh, that's what I did. So everybody calls me cash. That's what I go by. It just kind of stuck. And so, uh, that's who I am. I'm a retired Navy veteran after 20 years of military service. And I was the 2018 gubernatorial candidate, uh, for the state of Illinois, uh, for the libertarian party there. And it was a tremendous honor to represent them and to, uh, to bring a different message to the campaign trail, uh, you know, as opposed to what we commonly see between Republicans and Democrats. And, you know, now I'm uh, kind of pursuing my my second endeavor, my second career there. Nice. As I, I mentioned to you before, I followed your entire campaign and I got to say you're probably one of the most successful libertarians to hit campaign trail. I don't, I've tried to follow as many libertarians as I can, but nobody has, that I know of, has gotten as successful and gotten as much coverage as a, as a governor, a candidate for governor as you did. Did you get a lot of support from the Libertarian Party to get to that point? 
Uh, I did. Yeah. I mean, there's no way I could have done it without them. The, um, uh, between national and the state party, uh, you may well know that ballot access for third parties in many states is a daunting task. And Illinois is certainly one of those. And so we had to acquire nearly 50,000 signatures just to get onto the ballot, as opposed to a Republican or Democrat that needs 5,000. Our minimum threshold is 25,000 valid signatures for a statewide race. And um, typically we get challenged by Republicans or Democrats on the validity of these signatures in an attempt to get us thrown off the ballot. And so that's why we have to, you know, really just double up our efforts there to ensure we get, we get a good buffer. And so absolutely the, the state party there was, um, you know, a hundred percent behind me and, you know, that they put in, they put in the work. I mean, they worked hard. The one thing that I will say for libertarians is, is that they are some hard, hardworking people and they don't let the hurdles that are placed before them be an obstacle, uh, you know, that, that prevents them from pushing forward. And so we got onto the ballot and uh, we mounted what I believe to be, uh, you know, a, a very successful race in just the regards of uh, bringing that libertarian message and, and what the different viewpoints look like from our party and our platform. Absolutely. And we always think of people that run for like those offices, governors, um, states, even in the federal level. Normally, those candidates, they already come with a lot of money. They're usually wealthy people. And that wasn't the case necessarily for you. And to be able to to be on the uh, the stage, and I believe you're probably the only candidate for for governor that has been able to make it to a televised uh, debate for for governor anyways that i know of how was that like what was it like to be on the stage with a very wealthy democrat a very wealthy republican and debate against them well it was um i i think possibly i i don't know you know i, I can't speak for those candidates but i think possibly that you know, for them, they just kind of saw me as, um, you know, somebody who didn't deserve to be there. They kind of tolerated my presence, if you will. And they were wise enough and their campaign teams were wise enough to ensure that they didn't give me any focus, any attention. Uh, and you could see that in that debate on NBC. But it was a very surreal experience in myself. And my fiance and my campaign team, we just soaked in the entire thing, every single moment of it. It was just such a tremendous uh, milestone, not only for myself as just an individual, but for our campaign and uh, I believe for the Libertarian Party. And the exit polls that I saw, um, whether they came from kind of more liberal leaning sources or conservative, uh, had me winning that debate. And uh, And that's you know, and that's not my testament to that. You know, it's having seen their numbers. Um, and even one of the other candidates, uh, Sam McCann, who had been a Republican, who was in that debate, his campaign manager came to me afterwards and was like, man, you, I have to say you won that debate, even though it was clear, you know, very uh, obvious that they jumped over you multiple times and they kept, you know, not giving you questions. And it, it was very obvious what they were doing to you. And but even with that, you still mounted a uh, impressive effort in that debate. And so that was really humbling to hear, get that feedback from people. 
I got it from Democrats. I got it from Republicans, independents, you name it. And uh, so that was just it was a really humbling experience altogether. Absolutely. And uh, you, you definitely won that debate. And I think that you did so well that they you didn't I don't think you did any more debates with them right after that. That one. No. Yeah. They they erected hurdles in the League of Women Voters. You know, look, this is something that we see time and again. And I think that uh, Jesse Ventura is probably the one, at least it comes to my mind, that uh, showed Republicans and Democrats, given the opportunity, independents and third party candidates can prevail. And I think that they knew they know that. I mean, they're, they're not dumb. They know that Jesse Ventura won, I believe it was 1998 there in Minnesota. And with each successive debate that he did, his numbers uh, dramatically improved. And that terrified them, I believe. And so, yeah, they, they kept me out of the other debates. And um, looking at what their criteria were, even so, I believe it was the last debate that was down in Quincy. The, the criteria that was set for that debate, the Democratic candidate actually didn't meet that criteria. Actually, the only two that met it was the Republican candidate or the incumbent and Sam McCann, who was the conservative party candidate, which uh, really just he was a shill for Mike Madigan and the Democratic Party to siphon votes from from myself as well as the incumbent. But uh, either way, it. It was what it was, but I still went to him. I still went to the other one in Chicago. We protested outside that debate. I still went down to Quincy and was available for that debate. Um, I was I was right outside. And but of course, uh, that invitation was not going to get extended because they knew what would happen. Right. And I think that the average voter doesn't realize how terrified the the Republican Party and Demo uh, Democrat Party um, are of third party candidates because being a libertarian we're and we are the largest third party out there they're so terrified of us that they they put all these hurdles to keep us out and i think the the average voter needs to really think about that like why is it that they keep us out of the picture and right I, you know what do you think uh, the Libertarian Party could do to kind of overcome those hurdles? Like, how can we educate the average voter that that don't even really know about us? Well, I think there's a few things. I think, number one, that National um, needs to have a more concerted effort about focusing on mainstream issues and not uh, not issues that uh, I'm not saying they're not important, but. For instance, whenever I see National tweeting out about sex worker rights um, on Twitter, to me, um, again, not that it's not an important issue, but it's not mainstream. It's not something that's going to appeal to your average voter. And, right. uh, and that's something that we have to do better about. We have to appeal um, to the average voter. We have to educate them as to what libertarians are and what we believe. And we have to be you know, we have to be a little bit pragmatic and realistic about the average person that we're dealing with out there. And the average person, you know, if you start delving into some of the, the deeper economic uh, aspects and, um, you know, some of the more, you know, well-read individuals out there, they began going down these rabbit holes talking about, um, you know, 
uh, economics or, or other issues and you just lose people. They just glaze over. They're like, what is this right. person talking about? And we do I, a disservice to ourselves. You know, it's like stump, you know, we just stub our toe. I know. And uh, it's, I think, you know, Ron Paul, the person that I admire greatly, I think he did an excellent job. You know, unfortunately, being a candidate for the Libertarian Party, he became a candidate for the Republican Party. But he, his movement, I think that's where he was strong on is to kind of put that libertarian philosophy into the main mainstream issues and, and taught and was able to kind of get down to the to the voter and have them uh, attract them in a way to see his libertarian views. And I think the other thing that we don't cash in is the uh, anti-war like. I think the Libertarian Party would do so much better if we really focus on anti-war and get people to understand that we want our troops back and stop getting into these regime changes and interfering with other countries. I think we would do a much better job if we focus on that. I think we would gain a lot of support that way. And again, it comes down to messaging. And I think when most people hear anti-war, they hear uh, anti-military. They believe that you're against True. the troops. And so, again, it, it comes down to marketing. Uh, th this is marketing 101 of reaching people, understanding their concerns, and packaging that in such a way that they're receptive to it and they don't shut off. And so, uh, of course, I would think that National would need to do some polling about you know, different languages. Are you anti-war? You know what I mean? Uh, you, you know, the surveys we did in the military, right? And they'll reword something 50 different ways, but ask the same question. I think that we need to kind of do the same thing with our marketing strategy and find out um, just where people's minds are at, the average voter out there, and then kind of tailor our messaging to that. I would think that most people are going to go, if they had a, a better understanding of the economics of how much money we're spending uh, in our foreign policy and being overseas and these different occupations that we take part in, I think that, that that rings even stronger with a lot of people when they go, wait, my kids and grandkids are how much in debt and they're not even born right. yet? You know, when, when you begin to appeal to people's uh, economic sense and their wallet, and those are things that speak to people. When you go, ah, we're anti war. Well, unfortunately, the propaganda machine of the mainstream media portrays you as being anti-military, um, and nothing right. could be further from the truth. So you weren't always a libertarian. What, what got you to that point? And this is uh, another like kind of, of your history that I admire quite a bit. So what got you to the point of becoming a libertarian? And what did you kind of label? And I hate using labels on my podcasts, but just to kind of get the uh, listener to you know understand how did you make it to becoming a libertarian? Well, it, it was kind of a couple things. So I, I was a, um, I predominantly voted Republican and I didn't vote a lot, like a lot of military. I had that mindset of, well, I'm serving my country. So you guys staying back home need to do the rest, right? You need to put good people in office and I'll go do the heavy lifting and I'll deploy. Um, but I, you know, in the elections I did vote in, I predominantly voted Republican. Uh, there were a couple, I think, sprinkled in Democrats whenever I was out there in Washington state and some local races. But uh, there were a few things. So, number one, um, and we didn't talk about this before when you and I had touched base uh, a couple of days ago. 
But one of the things that I witnessed was uh, shortly after uh, cannabis was decriminalized or legalized, I don't remember which one it was there in Washington, but when they were going to stop enforcing uh, cannabis law to the extent that they were, a friend, um, my friend uh, Ian and I had went over to Seattle. It was around Christmas time. And we were walking um, up one of the side streets there, heard some Christmas music playing. And when we got up there and we went, turned onto the street, there was uh, a bunch of people dressed up as Santa Claus or elves or whatever. Right. And they were all doing cannabis. All these people were doing cannabis. And before I was very anti-legalization or decriminalization of cannabis until I just stood there and watched and observed. And it was just a moment of clarity for me to see that, I mean, it, they're harmless. It's kind of like a beer right. garden. They're just laughing and joking and they, they weren't bothering anybody. And uh, I saw a couple of police officers standing down by a um, kind of a roadblock barrier there. And they were observing. Now, they could have fully ticketed them. It was at that time. It was not. You couldn't do it in public. And so they right. could have walked right. over there and ticketed them. But they didn't. And so. You know, to see that, to see the, you know, that's that difference there of here's police observing some, you know, people that are doing something that's still technically illegal in the street. And it was just, you know, it was like a beer garden. And so that was one thing. Um, uh, Another piece was, you know, gay marriage. Uh, I was opposed to gay marriage for many years. And I guess kind of what really changed my mind is I began questioning myself on, well, why is government involved in marriage at all? And so right, it kind of, right. I mean, into some doing some research and that was passed in 1913, uh, I believe it was during Woodrow Wilson's administration and um, government getting into the institution of marriage had everything to do with money. It was kind of, oh God, I forget the term there, but, um, you know, kind of a unintentional societal engineering there to increase uh, marriage and thereby increasing children, you know, and your Consequently, your labor force there. Right. And and so, you know, I see that again. It, that's not equal protection under the law, that if you're married and you have children and you get tax breaks that a single person doesn't get, that's not equal protection under the law. And right. we sh- and we should have that. And so those things kind of really got my mind to thinking along a more libertarian mindset. But it wasn't until my experiences in family court in Lake County, Illinois, uh, where I really, really began to kind of research to understand what the founding fathers' intents were for the pursuit of liberty and, uh, and happiness in our nation. And it was seeing how um, an official that's supposed to be representing uh, government, supposed to be representing the people through an unbiased lens, and it was how I was treated, very much I was treated like a criminal. And at the time, I had 18 or 19 years in the Navy. I had a top secret clearance. I'd been a reserve sheriff's deputy for several years there in that county before, whenever I was stationed at Great Lakes, Illinois. And I I just couldn't believe it. And so the research that I began to conduct, uh, I then began to tie in all of these mainstream issues, such as um, uh, teen pregnancy, high school dropout rates, drug abuse, uh, welfare, violent crime. Uh, teen suicide and depression, uh, uh, the pharmaceutical company and, you know, treating these these side effects to ultimately what amounted uh, to 20 million children growing up absent their biological father. And I'd ask right. myself, I'm like, how did 20 million dads wake up and go, you know what, 
I'm going to deny my most basic instinct of providing for my offspring and rearing my offspring. 20 million fathers didn't just wake up and that happened to them. Right. And so that's kind of what began my real hard push into uh, libertarian ideals. So, and, and that's something that I, I, you know, I didn't know about much when I was following your campaign. I knew that you had some um, issues with family court and that, you know, just like many of us fathers, uh, even myself, you know, I've, I've gone through that hardship and, and I knew that was one of your focuses as candidate for uh, governor of Illinois. How, and I know that you, before then, you were very into um, kind of trying to advocate for fathers and you you protested. What what was that protest like? I know kind of the backstory, but for our listeners, when when did it start and what was that like journey? Well, so it was it was uh, multiple protests, actually. And uh, the very first protest that I organized to bring awareness to family court and how detrimental it is to our communities. Uh, I actually did it my first day of terminal leave right outside the Lake County Courthouse where my case was actively uh, going on. And that was, again, uh, I don't remember what date it was, but it was in June of 2016, my first day of terminal leave. And then I really launched, you know, uh, uh, a platform of protest Beginning on September 1, 2016 in Olympia, Washington. That was my first official day out of the Navy. And um, I put on my dress blue uniform with full medals. And I inverted an American flag, which is a sign of duress. It's not disrespect uh, per U.S. flag code. And uh, it's at extreme risk to life and property. And, you know, whenever an American court system can separate you from your children, uh, with the lowest standard of evidence humanly possible, when they can infringe upon your constitutionally protected rights that you and I fought to defend and men and women died to defend, when they can do that in an ex parte hearing where you're not even present to defend yourself, that's a real problem in this country. And I'm not an isolated case of this. I mean, this is a systemic issue all across this nation. It's happening every single day. It, it, it also amounts to um, uh, backdoor gun uh, confiscation, uh, red flag laws, if you will. And so right. there's huge infringement upon Second Amendment rights. There's gag orders instituted every single day. There's a tremendous infringement on First Amendment rights. And they use a, uh, just a lot of intimidation and bullying, these judges do and these attorneys do, uh, to coerce you into signing agreements that certainly are not any, anything remotely close to being equitable. And some people right. are going to go, oh, well, he's just, you know, Cash is just a disgruntled father that didn't get his way. No, it's not that. I mean, you know, if you take a look at a survey that was conducted from 2008 to 2010, where they surveyed 14,000 homeless veterans and five of their top 10 greatest unmet needs revolved around the, uh, the uh, detrimental effects of family courts. I mean, that's right. got to tell you there's a problem. And it's not a far stretch to believe that, look, if you've got 14,000 homeless veterans that are saying, hey, a lot of our unmet needs are because of what happened when we went through this family court system, it really kind of broke us. It's not a far stretch to believe that, that those cases could also be attributed to the high suicide rate amongst veterans as well. 
because when you right, take right. somebody that served their country and now they get treated like a piece of crap and they think that, you know what, I serve my country. I, I would think that my country is going to not treat me better, but at least look at, look at me in an unbiased fashion. And they don't do that. And so there's just a lot of national issues that are tied into the fatherless epidemic. Right. And, you know, I would get if, like, say you were like, had some serious issues where be you, you know, it was a situation where there was abuse in the, in the marriage and you need some sort of mediation in there. But like you said, whenever, you know, I, I just know this from experience, my parents were um, divorced and I'm divorced and remarried. And so I had to go through the family court uh, kind of experience. And you're right. Like it just, they treat like, it almost seems like they treat every father um, like a criminal. And, you know, maybe that is the case in some instances, but it, it becomes to the point where it's, it's almost like a, by default, because you're a male, because you're a father, you're going to get the short end of the stick. And I think that comes into maybe a uh, economic or a, a financial um, thing, right? They, they do make money off of these family courts. And when you look at it like, okay, well, who's going to be the one making the most money? You know, well, statistically, it's usually the the guy that is the one out working and making all the money. And so they're the ones that are going to be providing that child support. Uh, the mother will have a harder time because she might, you know, not get to work or she hasn't worked for a very long time while she was married because that may be the case. And the judges just by default think, OK, well, the woman is not going to be providing the uh, the money. So we're going to go after the the male who we know that will be working and making all the money and getting it, you know, making the child support. But the court makes money off of this or the government makes money off of this as well. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah. So th there's really uh, two predominant drivers in why our nation hasn't moved to a rebuttable presumption of 50-50 shared parenting. Now, remember, rebuttable means this isn't the definitive outcome, it's the starting point, hence the term rebuttable. Um, but we should be presumed equal in the eyes of the court when we set foot in there. And as you mentioned earlier, uh, it's kind of became the standard that fathers end up with the every other weekend uh, and a few hours on Wednesday type scenario. That is the justification, that limiting of time that the court places upon you as a, as a parent. And this happens to a lot of moms, too. Um, it's just been statistically and predominantly fathers, but when they limit that time, uh, they're going to say to you, okay, you know, sir, you're going to have to pay uh, child support because, well, the children are with the mother 80% of the time. And so therefore you're going to need to pick up some of that, that slack and, and help pay. What they don't tell you is that when that collection process happens, that the state receives federal subsidies. And uh, this derives out of what's known as Title IV-D of the Social Security Act. And there's, there's several different criteria in there that states must meet. And uh, one of those being, you know, the establishment of paternity, who the father is, um, their collection rate. And uh, there's one or two other criteria in there. But um, the, really the most important one is the limiting of time to justify that child support order. You know, I'm not opposed 
to supporting my children. I've always supported my, my children, always. Uh, what I am opposed to is, number one, the fact that there's a conflict of interest because when the state receives these monies and they go into the state's general fund like they do in Illinois, and then judges and the entire court system is paid and their, their benefits are paid from out of the general fund, to me, there's a very clear conflict of interest that you're using children and you're limiting parents' time with those children to justify these child support orders so that you can receive federal subsidies. And that is, a, to me, that is just a huge conflict of interest. And, you know, the second large piece is that um, the, the ensuing conflict that attorneys will stoke is what they use to maximize their billable hours. It, it is not economically beneficial to them uh, as attorneys for, you know, for me and my ex or soon to be ex if I was still married. But if we were to walk in there and go, hey, look, we just want 50-50 equal custody. We don't want any child support. You know, here's here's what we have, our assets. We just want to split that right down the middle with one another. Uh, let's just draft up that paperwork and go on our merry way. They don't make any money off that. I mean, they, they don't make any money. They right. make money by taking and analyzing all of your financial assets and mapping out a plan to extend this litigation out to the fullest extent, dropping you at a critical point. And a lot of times, what does that do? It's kind of like a little burst, a burst of money where you go, oh, man, they're going to drop me at this critical juncture in my case. So I need to get another credit card and max that out and, and pay them another six thousand right. dollars. or I need to borrow money, take out loans. These are the these are the, the pitfalls of family court system. Definitely. And it just seems like, a, you know, it's that corruption in government that I don't think a lot of the average voters understand where you can pretty much relate everything to uh, the family court, gun control or drug prohibition and other issues. And it's all, all just corruption that the average voter, for some reason, they can't see it. And it's just so obvious what they're doing. Like you said, you know, where do these judges get their their pay from? It comes from that general fund where the child child support is going into. And, and for for me, it's a little bit frustrating that a lot of people don't see that. And um, but I think you're doing a great job in like educating and awareness uh, to that now during your campaign that was one of your main focuses was family court and i even remember in the debate you brought it up a, a a few times and relating it to a lot of the other issues after your campaign that kind of affected you a little bit right during family court as well can you tell us a little bit about that well um so a couple things are during my campaign i had filed a what's known as a federal removal and it was just um, more so a, a tactic to bide myself some time so that I could campaign because I was being brought into court uh, two to three times per month. And um, I didn't really have high hopes that the federal court was going to rule in my favor uh, because kind of as a rule of thumb, number one, they don't hear domestic relations cases. But secondly, as a, um, as a plaintiff in the case, uh, you're exempt or you're not permitted to do federal removals. Now, they would still have to see the case and, and see this information and then remand it back. And I knew that. 
Um, and so uh, before they were able to remand it back from out of federal court to state court, the judge ordered the case reopened and he cut me off from my daughter. Now, this was uh, just one of numerous acts of reprisals from this judge when I did something that he didn't like. And that's what he did. He held an ex parte hearing without me present and cut me off from my daughter. And that was an attempt to get me to stop campaigning, because if I stopped campaigning, I stopped talking about him and the corruption inside the court systems. And so it is now uh, over 18 months later, and I've had no contact with my daughter. And that is unfortunately one of the downfalls of being an activist and speaking out, being a whistleblower. Uh, they seek to punish you. And that's what this judge did at every single turn. And one of the most egregious uh, acts that happened was that his own brother, who had been an, elect an elected Republican back in the 90s, was a House representative, and also an attorney. Uh, that brother, Al Salvi, had demanded that I turn over my libertarian nomination to him publicly. He demanded this on social media. It was um, even captured in several media outlets in the newspapers, uh, a very, in fact, the largest political blog in the state, which is ran by Rich Miller. You could go back and, and look that up. Uh, and, and, that, and, his, and his writings goes to every single Republican and, and Democrat office in that state uh, and paid for by the taxpayers, mind you. But nonetheless... It was widely distributed that my judge's brother had demanded I turn over my nomination. I presented this and made an oral motion in court for him to recuse based on a conflict of interest, and he refused. And so, you know, his brother demanding that I turn over my nomination to him wasn't enough of a conflict for him to recuse yeah. himself, and he remained on the case. Which, in effect, means, in my opinion, and I'm no legal expert, I'm not an an attorney, uh, that every order issued uh, is void on their face. Right, right. And, and so we're going to find out here in the near future. So, I mean, 18 months of not being able to, to see your child, that's just, to me, like the most heart-wrenching and most unfair. And for me, it's like almost criminal to do to a father. And... You know, I can't imagine, you know, I get to see my kids. I've got to the point because my son is old enough now to have his own cell phone, which is crazy. Uh, he's only nine years old. But, hey, you know, it does allow me to right. <laughs> see him pretty much every day now, uh, you know, at least that way. And, you know, I get to go visit them. We're I I live in, in San Diego, they Portland, so I get to go see them. But I can't imagine 18 months. I'm not being able to, to see my kids. And I've done like, you know, that amount of time before being in the Navy and going on deployments. And it's it's torture. I don't think anybody knows how torturous it is to to a father. You know, to any parent and especially to the children. Uh, I mean, and that should really be the most important aspect is that, look, it, to me, it's, it's roughly the equivalent of if you were to take a gun and put three rounds in it and lay it on the kitchen table with your five-year-old in there and then walk away. Will they pick it up? You don't know. Will they pick it up and be able to figure out how it functions? You don't know. Will they uh, ultimately kill themselves or somebody else with it? You don't know. 
But what you've done is you've substantially placed them in harm's way. And by removing fathers from out of the picture the way that they've done, they've increased the likelihood that these children are going to have emotional and mental uh, health issues. And as a result, being on some sort of psychotropic drug that's peddled by the pharmaceutical industry. And as a result of that, having more side effects. And, um, and we can see how damaging this is when we assess high school dropout rates, teen pregnancy rates, welfare rates, violent crime rates. There is one common denominator. And one of those, or the most, I believe the most prevalent is coming from fatherless homes. And I think right. um, between family courts and the failed war on drugs, these are the two industries that have removed more fathers from the home than anything else. And they've done the most damage. So you talked about how this judge really like made some some judgment calls that definitely, in my opinion, kind of was to get back at you. And, and this you're not the only one that this has happened to. And this is kind of a, a abuse of power that judges use is the uh, uh, contempt. What What is contempt and how do judges use it abusively and why are they allowed to do to to do this well number one uh, attorneys have infiltrated every single area of government they exist inside the executive branch the judicial branch and of course the legislative branch in tremendous numbers and what they have done is effectively uh uh, built barriers to protect their industry and protecting judges is one of the key components of that. And so judges in, enjoy near absolute immunity that even if you could show, even when you can show that they have abused their authority, that they haven't been unbiased, it doesn't matter. The likelihood of them being removed and, uh, and sanctioned is very few and far in between. Uh, I believe it was in Santa Clara County, California, I want to say. Um, I forget. It's, it's up the coast there. But uh, there's been some activists there that have had a lot more luck with getting these judges thrown off the bench and pulled out of office. But on a national scale, it's not very often. And it's because we have given them such wide discretion why have we done that? What was the purpose of the Constitution? The purpose of it was to constrain government from infringing upon natural rights. You know, your ability to speak out against the government, to seek redress, your ability to exercise freedom of religion, to keep and bear arms, to protect yourselves, to be um, uh, protected in the comfort of your home from illegal searches and seizures so on and so forth. But giving judges the, the discretion that we have gives them the ability to infringe upon those rights. And in courts like family court, where they're courts of equity, the standards of evidence are so grotesquely low, say, you know, if abuse allegations are made, okay, that should be taken seriously. Why are those not held in criminal court? Because the last that I checked, abuse is illegal. To hurt somebody is illegal. And those should be heard in not only criminal court so that the accused gets full due process, but that if there's an actual finding of that abuse, they're punished accordingly. And right. that doesn't transpire. And so a lot of times what these judges use, if you don't do what they tell you to do in the manner they tell you to do it, they'll use the contempt powers of the court. 
And so it can be direct civil contempt. It can be indirect civil contempt. It can be uh, criminal contempt. There's a variety of different ones that they use. But the one I've personally uh, witnessed the most is indirect civil contempt. And it's where you're not actually physically in the courtroom, but uh, there's a court order in place that uh, you're supposed to abide by. And then when you don't, they incarcerate you for it. And again, to me, it's a complete violation of due process rights uh, in the manners in which these are utilized. So what, in your experience, is there any way to circumvent these issues? Like, because as you said, lawyers, they're going to kind of protect their own. So I imagine, you know, a lot of lawyers just kind of deal with it and be like, well, you know, that's just how the way it is as a, as a father or even a mother that has to battle these things. What, what kind of things that you, from your experience, you can do to kind of either prevent or fight these kind of contempt orders? Well, I I think the starting point is stay the hell out of family court. Don't even set foot in there. Do not go in family court because, um, they're not going to treat you well. Even if, even if you know there is absolutely no reason why they should say limit your time with your kids or, or any other number of things there, if you believe for one second that you're going to go into the majority of these courts and receive some sort of fair treatment, you are horribly misguided. And that includes criminal courts. There's a reason why conviction rates are so, so high um, where they seek these plea bargains because they threaten, of course, you know, e- if you're innocent and you're accused of sexual assault, um, you can't afford an attorney. So the court appoints one crappy attorney to you who from the onset, you can tell they're incompetent and they're not going to fight for you. You right. know that you're, you're on a losing battle and knowing the, the type of person you're dealing with. Now you're much more likely to uh, agree to a, um, some sort of a plea deal. And to me that, I mean, it's, it's wrong. I mean, if somebody is innocent or guilty, they should receive the same sentence regardless. Right. Um, they shouldn't be threatened with a much more severe sentence just to get them to agree to a plea. To me, that's wrong. It's very coercive. Absolutely. Uh, I remember, you know, when I was trying to research for even my own divorce and and family court there are avenues where there's like privatized companies that have like a mediation uh process where you go to them and they'll sit both parties down and kind of mediate and draft up um already a pre kind of agreement that then all you have to do after that is turn it into family court and say hey we already agree on this and this is what we want to do and, you know, sign for right. divorce. And would that be like, I guess, a better solution than going to government for, for these kind of issues? And yeah, I can, so mediation or arbitration. Then you have the issue where, well, not everybody can afford these. Well, unfortunately, there's just, there's not a lot of resources out there. And they do vary from state to state and county to county. Lake County, Illinois has what's called Prairie Legal Services. Uh, so for those that can't afford an attorney, but oftentimes what, what we find is that you'll have an individual, say a middle-class mom or dad there that has a decent income, um, you know, 40, 50, $60,000 a year. And, but, but they've now bankrupted themselves on attorneys, um, 
in cases like my own, where the child support order is now uh, topping 40% of your income, the money that you have coming in says, yeah, you should be able to afford an attorney. But the reality is, is that you're ordered to turn over the majority of that money. So now you can't afford one. So now you're not even eligible for legal services. So somebody living kind of at and below the poverty line can get it um, where you can't, even though on, on paper, you're penniless, you don't have any money. So it's just, there's just not a lot out there. And, And I think that one press that we need to make is that it needs to be more streamlined for people. You need to be able to just go online with some very clear forms. Um, if it's an uncontested case, it should be cut and dry with them. You know what I mean? They should be able to plug in what they want and walk into court. No attorneys. I, I don't get this nonsense with filing fees and everything else because right, uh, right. we're already paying for all of this through our taxes. And now we're paying for it again by having to go right. in there and pay filing fees. You know, and some of them are outrageous, you know. Two, three, four, five hundred dollar filing fees, um, and it gets very expensive very quickly. So, do you think you'll be running for any sort of office again, or you're going to focus more on just uh, activism? Um, well, right now, I'm I'm just going to kind of work to you know I'm still working just kind of rebuild my life. I mean, uh, if you go through a family court case like what I went through, it it is it amounts to a nuclear bomb, and it just destroys everything and. It takes a long time to not only heal emotionally and mentally from that, um, but financially it takes a long time. And so all of these aspects I'm rebuilding, uh, my emotional and mental and physical state, my financial uh, and economic standing, you know, trying to get back on some solid ground there. It's going to take me a while to crawl out of the debt that was created uh, through that um, family law case. And I do intend on running for office again uh, in the future. I don't know which one. Um, I announced not too long ago that I was going to run actually as a Republican here in Arkansas for a House seat uh, that's coming available in 2020. But, you know, as luck would have it, you know, some things in my life have kind of taken me a different direction. And it doesn't look like that's going to happen. But uh, I've had some urging from other libertarians to run for, say, an at-large position within the party and help to grow the party, uh, in that respect. And, uh, so I don't know, you know, there, there's a few things that I'm entertaining, but right now I just, I want to get my life into a position where I'm, I'm more confident, uh, and comfortable. And, you know, I, I would really like for my kids to kind of age out of the system. Um, you know, they've got four and five years respectively before they're aged out. And, uh, that would be a good time for me, um, whenever they, they turn 18, but, you know, uh, in the meantime, I'm going to do those things that I that I talked about. And, you know, I, I, I never say for certain what's going to happen or what's not going to happen. But I definitely intend on running for office again in the future that I will say. I'll be looking forward to that. Uh, you you ran an amazing campaign. So uh, and I guess one question I want to ask about campaign, how hard was it to really, you know, Illinois is predominantly from my experience, I was stationed also in Great Lakes and what I could see is predominantly liberal and Democrat, a blue state, basically. How how was it to try to go out and campaign and fundraise in a such a deep blue state being a libertarian? I got to say that fundraising uh, is the hardest aspects. And uh, I have to take responsibility that I did not raise nearly enough money. 
Um, you know, I, I think we were right around $25,000 total. And so now with that $25,000, I will say that we were able to garner about 110,000 votes. And so I think, I don't know what the math was, 23 cents maybe per vote, as opposed to the now elected governor who spent $72 per vote. So I don't know, I don't know what that uh, percentage difference is. I'm not that great at math, but what I do know is I did far more with way less. And, right. But I have to give most of that success to my team. My team was um, just amazing. Brian Lambert there was my campaign manager. He's a very knowledgeable, motivated guy. Eliyahu, Neiman, I mean, Paul Durr. There were so many great people on that team, and they worked their fingers to the bone on that campaign. And so I give the credit to them. They they did, man, they just worked their asses off. I just went where I was told to go and, you know, did what I was told to do. And so I, I give I give full credit to uh, to my campaign team there. You know, I think it's funny you said uh, you're not really good at math, but I I mean, the math is pretty clear. You 23 cents per vote. And, you know, the governor currently spent 72 dollars per vote i mean that just i think that's something that people should be able to see it's like wow this candidate did so much with so little you know can you imagine what he could have done in government and how much he could have saved taxpayers and how much money or how much of the debt he could have brought down knowing that he was able to do so much with twenty five thousand dollars only while somebody else was using like million dollars and um in campaigning yeah the uh the next closest candidate to me was sam mccann the other third party candidate there and they had raised i want to say around 1.5 million roughly and i don't remember his vote total but again i want to say that he was somewhere around 20 or 30 dollars per vote um that they that they spent so even then not not even remotely close and and the vote total wasn't substantially different um, for the amount of money that was spent. You know what I mean? So, you know, if I run, you know, when and if I run again, I don't know if it'll it'll be a much smaller local race. I mean, to run in a house race down here in Arkansas, uh, you could run a good campaign with that money with 25 or $30,000. That's what a, that's what a Republican or a Democrat can win a seat with down here. Of course, right. with over 40% of seats going unopposed and this being a primarily red state, they don't need a lot of money. But um, nonetheless, we shouldn't have the kind of big money in politics that we do. And I, I see it as purchasing you know, the most important positions in, in our states. And right. that's a travesty to, I believe, what our founding fathers had intended. Absolutely. I, I was listening to a podcast. They were talking about kind of what the libertarian strategy should be and what we need to focus on. And I, I kind of agree that we need to kind of look more at the local level because uh, we have to kind of prove to voters the libertarian kind of philosophy or the libertarian way, per se, just more freedom, you know, is something that would work. And I would love to see here in San Diego, for example, a libertarian run for even a councilman 
here. And I think it would make such a big difference. We we pay such a, a high amount of taxes. Uh, the cost of living here is just ridiculously high. I don't know if you ever, were ever, ever uh, stationed down here in San Diego, but uh, it, it's just so high. And it's because of all the different regulations and laws and enforcements that they have here. Uh, they just recently passed where section for section eight, every single uh, apartment complex or property management company has to accept section eight um, users to uh, and rent out to them. And regardless of their, you know, financial standing, regardless of their credit score, regardless of their uh, how much they make, they have to accept them. And, you know, you can only imagine how bad that is for the economy. And then on top of that, they have all these different regulations on development where it makes it extremely expensive for developers to build more apartments and build more housing. And that's what causes rent to go up. That's what causes housing market to go up because there's we're just so scarce in how where people can live. So. So when, when think, can we expect your announcement for running for city council there? Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, definitely, I want to uh, focus on, on this podcast first and kind of get myself out there and, you know, make more of a name for myself. And I think you will uh, help me out a lot on that. So I appreciate it. I appreciate you being on, on my podcast. You don't even know how, like, such a, such a great honor. And, like, uh, you're a great inspiration and so many aspects and the, uh, you know, just how I need to kind of work on, you know, being a better father to my kids and the way to think as far as politically and uh, just being a better person. You, you've you been a great inspiration for me on that. Um, so I greatly appreciate you being on the podcast. And, uh, Thanks, man. Appreciate yeah. that. Um, so... Thank you again so much. And, and this is uh, Grace and Cash Jackson. Thanks for being on. Appreciate, appreciate you having me on, brother. It was, it was definitely a good show. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe, like, and share this podcast. Until next time, this is Pace and Freedom.